Hi, my name is Dan Dick, the host of Church Matters. Today we'll be broadcasting part two on our topic of treaties and the church. We'll be picking up our conversation from Ovid Mercury, lawyer and an expert in constitutional law, and former national chief and currently the national spokesperson for treaties 1 to 11. And that's a land area that ranges from northeastern BC to northern Ontario. Ovid is of Cree heritage and is from Grand Rapids, Manitoba. Your background suggests that you intended to work for recognition of First Nations people. Can you remember a specific incident or a moment that sparked your passion for treaty rights? I would uh, reference two developments in my life. You have to remember, too, that uh, in this country, Parliament made a law that violated my right to retain my identity as a Cree person. I'm talking about the Indian Act that discriminated against Indian women who married non-Indian men and losing their status and therefore their children not being being Indian within the meaning of the Indian Act. Well, I'm one of those individuals that did not regain within Canadian law his Cree status or Indian status until I was 44 years old. But I'm also a Cree person. I grew, that my, my first language is Cree. My culture is Cree. That means that I grew up in a traditional way through hunting, fishing, and gathering activities of my, of my community and my, and my own family. I never ceased to be a Cree, even though Parliament said I wasn't. I, I, I knew that even as a child. But when I went to exercise my treaty right to hunt, which I had done before, uh, upland game birds, uh, I was stopped by a conservation officer and, and charged as a juvenile delinquent for hunt, hunting out of season. So that's an experience that informed me in terms of how important rights are to people and how important it is for people to be allowed to, to carry on with their traditional economy. The second incident that informed my attention on treaties is when I was a law student and finding out that the Supreme Court in the 1950s, this has changed since, the Supreme Court has decided that Parliament could alter the treaties by legislation. And, I, and for the life of me, I could not understand why one party to a treaty could use their law to change the treaty that was made between peoples. I'm sure they would not appreciate it if I did the same. I said, this is wrong, that the Supreme Court should not have the power to, to alter the treaty. This as Parliament should not have the power to alter the treaty, because treaty is nation to nation, government to government. And the only way the treaties can be changed is by political negotiations and by the meeting of the minds in the course of those negotiations. And that has not happened. There has been no mechanism, no process since, since the treaties were made for us to, to come together, to come to a common understanding about the significance, the meaning, and the scope of, of the rights contained in the treaties. A nation's character is often judged by its treatment of the most vulnerable in its midst. Why does Canada have to be forced by its own court system to honor previous agreements with First Nations? I've thought about this question many times, like, why does it take so much to do the right thing? Particularly when I had been missionized and indoctrinated in a Christian religion to believe that the act of love is greater than hatred, right? And, and also the idea of honesty is greater than lying that people are, are asked you know, to try to measure their life according to a standard that is defined through Christianity, through life of Christ. So I'm dealing with Christians here who are in Parliament, and there's a dissonance here about their behavior in relation to my people. And I have a difficult time understanding why a Christian person cannot be honorable in their dealings with the Aboriginal people.
And when these treaties were made, not so much now, but when these treaties were made, Canada was considered to be a Christian nation. I think it still does uh, regard itself um, as a Christian nation. But Canada is a young country. It's like a child. It can still be shaped. And this this uh, has always been my belief, that if I can convince Canadians that Canada is not perfect, then they might engage in work with us in terms of perfecting it. So the idea of perfecting Canada is to honor treaty obligations is one of them. The other one is to ensure that no Indian child lives in poverty uh, or First Nations child or Métis child. And that to make sure that there is equality in society, that no one is discriminated because of their race or their religion and so on. And that the, the, the self-determination of the people, the, the right for them, themselves to govern themselves, like the, the Hutt race will understand this very well about self-determination, just like the Mennonites will understand what self-determination means. First Nations are entitled to their own self-determination. This is how we perfect society, not by, not by ignoring rights, not by dismissing people, and not by trying to suppress them, but by uplifting them, by recognizing their own collective identity, by allowing them to, you know, their right to be different, and then moving forward together in a way in which Christianity has taught everybody to walk hand in hand, right, to be good neighbors, to have love uh, between people. Why are treaty rights important to non-Indigenous Canadians? One of the tenets of the treaties is peace between people. This is a commitment we made, that we agreed to do that, to share the land and the resources, and that we would live in peace with the new settlers, that we would not engage in any act of violence against them. And uh, even the written text of the treaty, if one is to read it, you know, you could see that the commitment was made by my society not to interfere with your society. When it comes to treaties, even from that point of view of maintaining peaceful coexistence between each other, it's very important to non-Aboriginal people that Aboriginal people do not turn to violence in their dealings with with society. This is very critical. But the other thing is, um, when it comes to sharing wealth, if there is a, a... a true distribution of wealth based on the treaty. Our people would not be living in poverty. We would be amongst the richest in the country. And this would be good for Canada too. In fact, the Royal Commission uh, you know, uh, has undertaken a study to show that if the governments fail to deal with the poverty of Aboriginal people right now, that it will be a greater burden to the Canadian economy as time goes on. So the time to act is now, not to defer this burden to a future generation. And treaty implementation is about sharing wealth. And in fact, uh, I think recent decisions of the Supreme Court of Canada uh, have given some authority to us as a people to stop development. And it's called the, the duty to consult before any major projects happens in our traditional lands. So this, the courts have come a long ways to give us some authority. Uh, and we're going to use this authority to get the politicians to pay attention and to work with us in terms of treaty implementation. But we have to do it in the context of the original treaty, meaning that we cannot do it through violence. That it has to be done in terms of dialogue, discourse, and negotiations. And that's, that's what is meant by peaceful coexistence. Can you give our listeners some concrete examples of how we as individuals can live into our treaty relationships? A person who's a farmer uh, in Morden, right, and um, he has no contact with Aboriginal people uh, other than what he's seen in the news, and it's always very negative. Uh, so he's formed an opinion, not a go- not a good opinion about Aboriginal people, let's say. Well, my, my challenge to those individuals who are caught in that 
is to re-examine their understanding with more information, but preferably with contact, with friendships, uh, because it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a mo- more real to me as a person. Uh, an opinion is more real to me as a person if it's based on an actual experience between First Nations people and non-Aboriginal people. There has to be that connection between the people themselves in order to assess feeling or an opinion. And that's missing right now. We don't have that. We don't have those French friendships forming that allow people to uh, look at each other with, with straight eyes as opposed to, you know, doubtful eyes. Should non-Indigenous persons be concerned about what may happen to them if trees are or are not finally upheld? I think they should be more concerned if they're not. Uh, and I say that not not to be disrespectful to anybody, but to highlight what, this, what the, uh, what the uh, Royal Commission of Aboriginal People has, have said, that there is a social time bomb facing Canada if there's no attention to, to the Aboriginal poverty in, in the country, and that a real investment needs to be made right now in terms of education and jobs in the Aboriginal community and, 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 and in, the, in the creation of an economy for Aboriginal people, and that this would reap many profits for Canada many rewards for Canada in terms of its own gross national product, and that the Aboriginal people uh, should not should not fear uh, that kind of action. What they should fear is that if there is no action, that the burden, the economic burden, will, will be transferred to the next generation. It'll get worse and worse. As the jails are filling up right now by, of our people, that's an example, right? The child welfare system is overrepresented by our people. That's another example of inaction by governments has led to these results for our people. And that Canadians have to hold their governments accountable and say to them, look, we can't allow this to continue. These are our neighbors, these are our friends, these are our relatives. And we want them to live in a way in which we live, which is, you know, relative, uh, not just harmony, but, you know, prosperity, where people are looking after themselves. They have their own home, and they, you know, they raise their children with with their own income. This is what we want for Aboriginal people too, and that's where the Canadians need to stand up with us. The church, in broad terms, has a pretty uneven history with First Nations people. What is your call to the church now at this time? You know, uh, my understanding of uh, of Christianity was shaped through Catholicism. Like I was raised in the Catholic Church. But because of various experiences with that religion, I'm no longer uh, in the Catholic Church. Right? But I feel like I understand some of the ideas of Christianity based on that, the life of Christ. So I never disavow Christ. I disavow the church. That's different. My understanding is, is that he would have fought for the poor people. He would have fought against oppression and discrimination. He not only would have carried, you know, the language of love and kindness to the congregation, let's say, but he would have acted upon it. So my message is, you know, the churches, they have to go outside the scope of organization so that it's important for the churches to reevaluate themselves uh, with with the idea of maybe coming up with uh, another way of not not worshiping, but another way of acting in society. Because there is, there is a, a disconnect. The disconnect is that there, there is no continuity. It's like a fake reality. And that Christ was not a fake in my, in my understanding of his life. He, he would have walked my moggins. I think that's what needs to uh, be shared with uh, 
not just the Mennonite Church, but, but the United Church, the Catholic Church, is to go beyond organization and descend into the masses, to go there with the understanding you want to learn something, but to contribute to the betterment of a person's life or a group, a group of people's life, right? The community, the Mennonite community, uh, as I started this conversation, I have a great respect for those people, your people, because of what they've been able to do uh, since uh, the 1870s when they came to Canada, uh, where they emerged from two reserves uh, and how they developed such a great economy and that they did it as a collective and they did it by helping each other. This is the message that, that we give to our people too, that we have to help each other, that we have to do things as a collective. But what we need right now is the help of others. I don't think uh, enough of that kind of work has been done. I think people have been reluctant to face each other I think uh, there's been far too much uh, hiding in organizations and, and, and not enough people getting to know each other. Thank you very much for coming and talking to us today, Ovid. I'd love to talk more with you, but we do need to end our conversation here. Really appreciate you coming and tackling these questions for us. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it too. That completes part two of our series on treaties and the church. We couldn't fit the entire interview into this broadcast time slot, but you can listen to a full-length version of our interview online via our podcast version. Go to MennoniteChurch.ca and click on the Church Matters link under the Quick Links section on the lower right of your screen. We have over 20,000 listeners of this program. In addition, in 2012, Church Matters podcasts were downloaded nearly 6,000 times. We are grateful for each and every listener. To continue hearing Church Matters, please consider supporting this program with a gift to Mennonite Church Canada. To give, just call 1-866-888-6785 or visit MennoniteChurch.ca and click on the donate link. My name is Dan Dick and you've been listening to Church Matters. Know that you are called, equipped, and sent to be the church in the world today. Thanks for listening. As you go out from here May the Lord go with you, the face of God shine on you every day. We are sent by God wherever we are living, salt and light as people of the way.